You got the little thing working as well? Yes. Okay. This is the Shia Ilunish Mosma from Shmoban Avramaria Kain and Chai Tobabas Leaz Mendel Kain. It's also heir of Yomazi Koron. So the Shia is going to be said in memory of everybody, all the people that have given up their lives so that we can sit in comfort and security and learn Torah on a Monday afternoon. Um, their sacrifices are the sacrifices of holy people. And um, it's only right that we should uh, dedicate the shir and uh, many shirim in their memory. So we are in Yechezkel, we're in chapter 10, we're up to verse 8. Um, just to bring things up to date, uh, this is a continuing drama of the vision of Yechezkel in, in connection with the destruction of Yerushalayim a vision that's taking place five years before the destruction itself, uh, to give Yechezkel an insight into what is going to happen. The vision itself uh, is split up into various sections. He's viewed um, the the misappropriation of the base of Middosh for idol worship. He's um, been given insights into God leaving, making preparations to leave the base of Migdosh. He's been giving insights into how the base of Migdosh is going to, and Yerushalayim are going to be destroyed by fire. And he's been given access to conversations that are taking place in the higher realms of the spiritual world between God and the various angel groups at the highest level. Um, particularly with Gabriel. We learned last time that Gabriel uh, is on Yechezkel's side here in the sense that he doesn't want God to utterly destroy Yerushalayim in, the, in, in terms of the population. And uh, God, so to speak, has uh, relented and agreed that Yerushalayim should have survivors, but that uh, the city itself and the base of Midrash itself should be burnt to the ground. Um, Gabriel himself has uh, been told to grab uh, coals of fire and drop them on Yerushalayim. So far, he's refused to pick them up, the coals. They have to be, ha- they've been handed to him. And he's so far not dropped them on Yerushalayim at all. Um, and that was the end of last week's shir. It was a Gomorrah we did that was very, 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 very difficult to understand, if not impossible to understand. But now we're up to verse eight. And in verse eight, we sort of revert back to something that happened in chapter one. Um, and Yechezkel is seeing the chariot of God again as it um, as it uh, starts to leave the base of Migdosh, uh, chapter ten, verse eight. Vayar la kruvim tavnis yad odom. The kruvim, and again, just to reiterate, in this chapter, oh, in chapter one, the angels, the, the highest angels below the uh, ministering angels, were called chayot chayos. Um, in this chapter, they're called kruvim. And I've mentioned why that is. We'll come on to that again later. And um, so, Bayar la Kruvim, Tabnis Yadodom, the Kruvim appeared to have the form of a man's hand, Tachas Kanfehem, under their wings. Now, the simple understanding of this verse is that it's a direct continuation of the story of this chapter, uh, regarding Gabriel, which started in chapter, in verse two, when God instructed uh, Gabriel, the, uh, the angel dressed in white linen clothing, um, to take 
fire, fill his hands with fire from underneath the Kruvim, from underneath the Chayas, that he could throw them at the city. As the Possek says there, uh, in verse 10, two, 10 verse 2, Uzerok al that uh, Gabriel was told to gather up coals from below the Kruvim and throw it to the city. And as Yechezkel re- reported there, he came into my view, he came into my vision. So that in verse 2 there, Gabriel, uh, who's told to pick up the coals himself, um, uh, refuses to take them, refuses to pick them up. Um, as we see in verse 7, um, that um, which was the verse we did at the very end of last week's year, it says in verse 7, It was the Kruv, the angel, the Chaya himself, that extended a hang from among the Kruvim, from among the other Chayos, to the fire, to the fire that was beneath the Kruvim. Remember, there's a barrier of fire between the Chayos, or the Kruvim, and the Ofanim, the uh, circular angels that were below them. Um, and um, the Kruv handed it, handed these coals to Gabriel. And instead of throwing them on the city, the Possek says, He picked them up and he left. He left uh, Yechezkel's field of vision. So that that's the verses leading into verse 8. But here in verse 8, Yechezkel describes in his vision what happens next. He's describing the transfer of the coals, where he says, The Kerubim passed the coals to Gavriel. Um, and they appear to have the form of a man's hand under their wings, describing the apparent human method by which the coals were transferred from the Kerubim, from the angels, these chayos, to Gavriel by hand. So it just seems to be the continuing story of um, what's going on in uh, the vision, in, 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 in the sense of we're getting ready, so to speak, for the destruction of Yushalayim by fire. It's just that Yechezkel, uh, just that Gavriel, um, is disobeying orders. He's been given direct um, instructions by God to pick up the fire himself, which he didn't do. He waited for it to be handed to him. And then he was instructed when he had it in his hands to throw it at the city, which he didn't do. Um, and um, and uh, this seems to be the continuation of that prophecy. However, there's a deeper understanding of this verse, uh, much deeper, which is outlined by the Shla, the Shla HaKadosh, the Shnei Luchos Abris, in his commentary to Bamidbar, of all things. Um, and he writes uh, a Kabbalistic piece here, which is actually, as far as Kabbalistic pieces go, uh, quite easy to understand and quite easy to grasp. Um, he's writing about the names of God and um, uh, the fact that the name of God includes the letter Hey. He's writing about the, in Bamidbar here, he's writing about uh, the letters of the alphabet, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and he quotes a Gomorrah from Shabbos. And this is what he writes. He writes, the name of God concludes with the letter He. Now he's talking about the four-letter name of God, the tetragrammaton or tetragrammaton, 
which is a yud, a hey, a vav, and a hey, the last letter of which is a hey. And he writes that the last, the last letter in God's name is symbolic of charity. It's symbolic of tzedakah. Like if you take the name of God, that four-letter name of God, the last hey, he goes in to explain the first three letters, but that's not our real concern here. The last letter is. The last letter of God's name is a hey, which he says from Kabbalistic sources symbolizes charity, tzedakah, and not any any old tzedakah, but the tzedakah, the charity of God. And he points to a Gemara in Shabbos, which is also a little bit of a complicated Gemara on Dafkuf Dalet on page 104. And the Gemara says that all there, the Gemara there in Shabbos is also discussing the letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, remembering that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are themselves creation letters. They, the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are not just stand letters, not just ordinary letters like you've got in English, where the actual letters don't mean anything. They're just used to make up a word. So you've got the word dog, um, uh, and the dog is just a, a, a mental link, gives you a mental link to uh, a discussion. So somebody mentions the word dog, so you understand that we're going to be speaking about four-legged creatures that bark. Um, but the letter D, the letter O, and the letter G in the word dog really have got no relevance to anything. In Hebrew, that's not the case at all. In Hebrew, the letters themselves have got great meaning. They're creation letters. They're used to describe God's interaction and um, interaction with the creation of the physical universe. and um, so that uh, each letter stands by itself. So you've got the letter Aleph is made up of an Aleph. It's also made up of a Lamed and a Pei, which makes up the actual word Aleph. So all three letters have got relevance. So where the Gemara there is discussing the letters Gimel and Dalad, so the Gemara mentions there that the, the letters Gimel and Dalad represent God's creation of something called Gemul Dalim. The Gimel is Gemul, and the Dalad is Dalim, Gamul Dalim. These two letters are creation letters that created the concept of giving to the poor, Gamul Dalim, giving, showing generosity and charity to the poor. Says the Gemara there that these letters are followed by the letter He, a letter symbolizing the name of God. So he writes that not only does the way this letter is formed represent the name of God, as we'll see in a second, but if you use the bottom left leg of the letter and place it before what remains, you get something else. So I'm just going to share with you exactly what he's talking about here. Um, What can I do here? I'm going to share a picture with you. Uh, here we go. Share a picture. Um, here we are. Share. So I hope everyone can see this. There's you've got a letter hey there as it's written in the Sefer Torah. And that letter represents the name of God. God interacting with the, the physical universe. The Possek says in Bereshit's Behei Boron. With the letter hey, God created the physical universe. So if what the Shla is saying here is if you look at the letter He there, it's made up of two letters. It's made up of a Dalad 
and it's made up of an upside down yud at the bottom left. Now, what you do, he says, if you take the upside down yud um, from the word, the letter he, and put it in front of the dalad that is still there, you get the, le- the word yad. So what he's saying here, I hope everyone can see that, you take the little yud that's on the bottom left of the letter he, and stick it in front of the letter dalad, you get the word Yad, representing God's hand, God's hand of charity. So Gamul Dalim, Gimul Dalad, the idea of uh, helping out and giving charity, uh, the creation of that concept that God introduced into the creative process, um, is basically the Yad Hashem. The He represents God, and the, if you transform the letters, the two letters that make up the letter He, you get the word Yad, so that all charity that's in this world, if you give charity in this world, you're acting like God. You're you're being charitable like God. So that's what the letter hey, I'll I'll quit the share now, stop the share. And uh, so you'll so now you know what the Shlah is talking about. So back to the Shlah. So he says that the the not only does the way the letter hey represent the name of God, the letter hey, but if you use the bottom left leg of the letter and place it before uh, what remains, you get the, the word yad, hand, an allusion to the hand that should be extended to the poor. Uh, and again, somebody that does that is is fulfilling the creative uh, will of God of Gimel and Dalit, which is Gamal Dalit, to deal kindly with the poor. And he continues, we are thus told in the Medrash, he quotes a Medrash from Eicha, from the Book of Lamentations, um, that says as follows, Rabbi Yeshua ben Sachnin, Rabbi Yeshua uh, ibn Sachnin uh, said in the name of Rab Levi that the angel Gavriel held the coals. Here we go back to the story of the coals. Remember, he, he'd been instructed to take the coals and pour them out on, over Yerushalayim. He failed to do so as instructed. He sa- says the Medrash there that uh, Gavriel um, uh, held onto the coals that he'd been given by the Kruv, the cherub, the Chaya, uh, which was calculated to destroy Yushalayim. He held it in his hands for five years, all the while hoping that the Jewish people would do some type of teshuva. When the Jews did not do so, Gabriel, as per his nature, Gabriel is the angel of fire. Gabriel is the angel of um, God's retribution in a state of, so to speak, if that can be described, uh, um, uh, prescribed to an angel, uh, Gabriel, exasperated that the Jewish people didn't do teshuva, decided to, to, to throw the coals on the city of Jerusalem indiscriminately. God, however, summoned him and said to him, this is the, the medrash here, very strange medrash, God said to Gabriel, 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 Lahoncha, Lahoncha, Gabriel, Gabriel, slowly, slowly. There are among them in Yerushalayim, those who perform charity with one another. In other words, you're not allowed to be exasperated. Your job, so to speak, is to throw the coals on Yerushalayim just so that the city will be destroyed and the base of Midrash will be destroyed but the people will not be totally annihilated and that the Jewish people of Yushalayim will be, get the chance to go into exile 
And from exile, they get a chance to return to Yerushalayim after that period of exile, which will last 70 years. And he says that's what's written, says the Shlach uh, HaKadosh. And in, in the, the, the book, the Shnei Luchot Abris, uh, that's what the meaning of our verse, Yechezkel chapter 10, verse 8, that, what, that's what it means. By, if you look at our verse, by Yalakruvim Tavnis Yad Odom Tachas Kampeha. The Kruvim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. The Yad, the hand, represents the hand of God, the hand of charity. That although now that God has decided to show some type of charity to the Jewish people of Yushalayim, he's preventing Gabriel from exercising uh, complete and utter destruction of Yushalayim. And this Yad Odom is actually the Yad Hashem, the charitable hand of God, preventing Gabriel from throwing the coals on the entire population of Yushalayim indiscriminately. So that's a bit of a Kabbalistic approach um, to um, what's happening in, in the dream or what's happening in the vision. Um, and uh, by extension, it's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came into Yushalayim to destroy the temple. They burned down the city. They burned down uh, the base of Migdosh, but they did not kill everyone inside the city. Many went into exile. Uh, many died on the way. Many died from famine. Many died from up for other reasons. But there were plenty of people from Yehuda and from Yushalayim that did not die. The city, of course, was completely destroyed, which, as we discussed before on previous occasions, is a chesed, because God, so to speak, took out a lot of his wrath, a lot of his anger, a lot of his fury on the bricks and mortar and the, the wood of Yushalayim rather than the people that occupied the city. Now he continues. Yechezkel continues in verses 10, uh, 9 and 10. He now describes, continu- continues to describe things that he's already described once in chapter 1, which is his revelation of God's Merkava, God's chariot, as it leaves Yerushalayim. And again, we'll see that he's doing it in reverse order from chapter 1. So in chapter, in verse 9, he says, Vayret. And then I saw, Arba Ofanim I saw the four Ofanim. Um, we had those in chapter one. Um Hakruvim that will will beside the Kruvim, beside the Chayos. Ofan Echod Eitzel Hakruv Echod. There was one Ofan beside one Kruv, one Chaya. Um, um, that uh, each each chaya or each kruv had attached to it an ofan, so that there were the similar amount of uh, chayos as there were ofanim, and the ofanim themselves, the circular wheel uh, appear, appearing angels, they appeared to be like wheels. Uh, ofanim. Oh, in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, it's Ofanaim is a bicycle, right? So Ofanim is something that's circular, wheel-like. Uh, and the Ofanim appeared to have like uh, the appearance of crystal. They had the appearance of tash, Tarshish, crystal, something like that. And in verse 10, Umarehan demus echod arbotom. As for their appearance, the four of them had one likeness. Kashe ye'er ofen besolcha ofen. 
each ofen was not just a wheel, um, it didn't just look like a wheel, but they were interactive with each other. They, they, the wheels, the wheels, the, they, the, each ofan appeared like a wheel, but it, it was, so to speak, uh, interacted with all the other ofanim, so that you had a situation where it looked like wheels within wheels. I'm always reminded of the song that anybody saw, um, uh, there was a film, I can't remember the name of the film, The Thomas Crown Affair. There was a, a very famous song that went with the film, The Thomas Crown Affair, um, that was called with A Wheel Within a Wheel. Don't know if anybody remembers that song or remembers that film. Um, like a wheel within a wheel, in an ever spinning and the world is like an apple, whirling silently in space. If anybody remembers that song, it was called with a wheel within a wheel. So that 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 is how the eponym appeared to be. Um, apologies for my singing voice. It's not uh, you know it's not Pavarotti, but I do my best. So what's what's going on in these two verses nine and ten? What's he describing? So Yechezkel really is continuing to describe God's chariot, how it looked, and the support features. Of the chariot, you have the chayas, or as they're called here, Ruvim, and below them you've got the Elfanim, which are wheel-like, so that the chariot appears to be supported by Kruvim, below which there seems to be wheels. Um, so he's describing God's Merkava, God's chariot, as it leaves Yerushalayim, and again, as I just mentioned, he's describing it in the reverse order from his description in chapter 1, because... Here in chapter 10, he has already described the apex of the chariot of the Merkava uh, and how it looked and uh, the throne of glory and the sapir, the sapphire stone beneath the throne of glory. Now he describes the appearance of the chayos or kruvim and the ofanim that were directly be- below it. Uh, in chapter 1, he, he described it the opposite way around. He described it from the ground up. Now he's describing the chariot from the apex down. And so in order to, to just get a, a handle on these Ofanim, um, it was quite a long time ago. It was 90 Shirim ago, I should think, where we last mentioned the Ofanim. Uh, so here's just a quick review of what the Ofanim are on the basis that we say it every morning. The Ofanim, Vachayas HaKodesh, we mention them every morning in Davening. The Ofanim, the circular uh, angels, Vachayas HaKodesh, and the Holy Chayas, which in this chapter are called Kruvim. So here's just a quick review um, of what the Ofanim are. Obviously, we're not going to go into them in, in the to the extent that we did when we uh, learned chapter one. But Rashi says um, that for each of the four faced Chayas, remember the Chayas HaKodesh, uh, or in this chapter, Kruvim, they, all, they each had four faces, four different uh, characteristic faces. Uh, for each of them, uh, for each of the Chayas, there was one Ofan. And so there were four Ofanim, four circular angels in total. And that's what Yechezkel's describing here. So exactly what are Ofanim? So of all the places to find a description of what they are, uh, this is really the last place you'd look. But it's the Mor- Mor- uh from the Rambam, the guide to the perplexed, or really the guide to for people that know everything except this. Um uh, or the guide to the people that really want to be confused. Um, he writes as follows, the Ofanim. What are the Ofanim? 
These angels represent the four classical elements, and this is something we is very important to understand later on in the chapter. Um, the Ophanim represent the four classical elements, earth, water, air, and fire. Um, and the characteristics of the Ophanim are um, they're connected, uh, directly connected to the spiritual beings, the Chayas HaKodesh, the Holy Chayas, here called Kuruvim, that are directly above them, and which are the Chayas or Kuruvim are purely spiritual beings, and they're also connected with the physical earth as well, so that you have a an, the Chayos or Kruvim are purely spiritual angels, spiritual beings. The Ophanim are, so to speak, partially physical and partially spiritual, and they are sort of, so to speak, uh, from the taking the uh, the um, Merkava from the top down or taking the world, so to speak, the spiritual and physical worlds from the top down, you have the totally spiritual realm, unknowing realm of God, which is the world of the Olam Atzilus. Uh, directly below it, you have the world of the Chaios, which is the, the Olam Habria, the world, world, world of creation, and which is also spiritual. You have below that the um, Olam Hayitzira, the, the world of formations, which is where the, the Ophanim seem to be, which is partially spiritual and partially uh, trans, transformatory uh, from spiritual to physical. And below that, you have the Olam the physical reality that we live in. So the God's will gets transferred down in uh, via one world to the next. Each time it, God's will goes down one level, it gets closer and closer to becoming a physical reality until it actually hits this world when God's original spiritual will becomes a physical reality. So there are the third leg down. So they're connected to the Chayos HaKodesh, which are in the spiritual world directly above them, um, but they're also partially physical because they're connected to the Olam HaAsiyah, the physical universe that is directly below them. So that is the first thing to say about them. As we just mentioned from Rashi, they have four faces, uh, and there are four separate beings. Uh, each one has got four faces. But as the Possek says, they interpenetrate each other. As the Possek says, ha'ofen besoch ha'ofen, as though it were a wheel within a wheel. That's the second thing. The third thing is they're covered with eyes, which is something we'll come to again uh, later on in the chapter. Their, their bodies are covered with eyes, what appear to be eyes. They're not actually eyes, but they appear to be covered with eyes, um, which represents the fact that uh, God, so to speak, is observing everything, um, everything in the physical world as it happens. Like nothing escapes, so to speak, the spiritual eye of the, the world of the Ophanic. Uh The fourth thing to say is they are not self-moving. Whereas the Chayas, who are in the realm above them, have freedom of movement. They can fly, they can move. Um, they are not self-moving. The Ophanim don't move themselves. They are set in motion by the feet. This is something we learned in chapter 1. They are set in motion by the feet of the Chayas, or the feet of the Kruvim. Now, the feet of the Kruvim are, are circular shaped, and they, set, so to speak, um, press the buttons, so to speak, to... Um, set the Ophanim into circular motion and to affect the world below them, which is the physical world. 
Um, the other thing to say, as the Rambam points out here, their motion, despite the fact that their circular bodies, um, circular um, uh, beings, uh, circular angels, their motion is surprisingly not circular. Their motion is rectilinear. It's one-dimensional along a straight line, linear rotation as opposed to linear changes of direction, uh, as opposed to circular changes of direction. In other words, they don't move in circles, despite the fact that they're interconnected wheels, they actually move in straight lines. Exactly why that is, the Ramam doesn't explain. That's what he says. Um, and he says the same may also be said of the four elements they represent. Um, the four elements they represent, as we said, or they are, they interact. They are the source of interactions with the four uh, classical elements, the earth, water, air and fire. And um, their interactions with the these four elements are also linear. Uh, they're not circular. In other words, they uh, they they go along a straight line. They have linear rotation as opposed to circular changes of direction. Um, and that means um, that even though they only represent the four elements, they can uh, uh, the four elements that we just described through their interactions with each other, they can form and initiate an infinite number of combinations and actions corresponding to the infinite number of permutations that God's will can initiate. Um, so, so to speak, God can initiate his will in the spiritual world. Once it gets down to the area of the, the Ophanim, their movements, their movements, their movements, their linear movements, interconnected linear movements are as infinite as God's will. And as a result of that, they are transformed in, they transform God's spiritual will, um, which has got infinite capability into our reality that we see in the physical world. That's the basic rundown of what an Ophan is, what the Ophanim are. Um, the Potsuk says here, Kashe Yeha Ophan Vesocha Ophan. They appeared interlocked, like wheels within a wheels, um, so that they could quickly change direction and more move either north, south, east, and west. And this is because two of the Ophanim faced north, south, and the other two uh, Ophanim crisscrossed them and faced east, west, so that they're all connected. It's like um, um, if you can I- imagine a cross axle of a four-wheeled vehicle uh, where all the wheels, you have, you have two wheels uh, facing in two directions, two wheels facing the opposite direction, so that they can they, they can interlock and change direction at a moment's notice, but all the while their, mo- their motion will not be circular. Their motion will always be linear, so that without any turns, they can rotate, change direction, whilst being interlocked with each other. And that's the way to picture them. I, I can't think of any other way to describe it, actually. Um, uh, some people find this type of thing, some, especially people that are, uh, are, are competent in 3D mathematics, find it's easy to Im- imagine. Other people find it very difficult to imagine. It makes no difference either way. That's just the way they are. And there's not much more to say about that. Um, now, the, the Malbim writes very clearly about the difference between what the Ophanim are, these circular angels, and the Chayos, HaKodesh, 
or the Kruvim, as they're called in this chapter, he writes it very clearly. He says, Mara Ofanim, but Ofanim lo hiske loshen dumus. Um, in, 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 in the context of the Ofanim, um, we don't see the language of form. Kamoshi hiske bechayas. Uh, as like we like uh, Yechezkel describes when he's describing the Chayos, uh, Hakodesh or uh, or the Kruvim, or what is above that, Ki Goshon, because the Chayos themselves don't really have a physical identity. Lo The Chayos, the Kruvim, only have a physical appearance. In a prophetic vision. In other words, God arranges it so the Chayas have seemed to have some type of physical, physical format, um, uh, in, in, only in a, in, only in a prophetic vision. In reality, they've got no physical, uh, makeup at all. Abel Ha'afanim, but the Afanim, him Gashmir, Musogim Bamara Ha'ayin. The Afanim do have a real physical makeup that a human being can see either, um, in, a spiritual prophetic vision, or if you, you know, if you bump into an Ofan on the way to uh, the Makolet. So they do have some type of uh, physical um, uh, physical body, even in the even in the uh, in the context of the physical world. Whereas if if you met a Chaya in the physical world, you wouldn't be able to um, see it because it doesn't have an actual physical form. It only has an, a physical form when you're appreciating it, when you're viewing it through the lens of a prophetic vision. Not just like, not, not just the appearance of being physical, um, like the highest. And so that the highest themselves have got, um, no, no intrinsic physical, uh, attributes. The chayas, the Yafanim, on the other hand, have the chain and the same, um, uh, the, the, the same idea, um, can be applied to their actions. Haim ka'ain tarshish shehi evan tova shimara kamara tcheles. Says the, the, uh, he says the proof of the pudding is they're clearly described here as having a physically, a physical color. They have, they're described as being tarshish, the color of tarshish. Now I described it in the, my translation, the posuk, um, like crystal, but the, um, the, the, the Malvin says it's no, it's Kamara, uh, Tcheles. They had the same color as the Evan Sapir. They ha- appear to have the same turquoise, sapphire color that the, um, Evan Sapir, the stone, uh, that made up the Kisei Hakova, the, the God's throne of glory, so to speak. Kiha Avir Hadak Shabo Sovavim Hakochovim Yisrael Laayin Kamara Techeles. They have an azure or turquoise appearance because of the dark blue backdrop of the thin air in the upper atmosphere. Now I don't know what he means by that. Does he mean that, that that's why they got that color or that color because of their color? That's why the upper atmosphere reflects that color. I'm not sure what he means. So they're described as being Tarshish. Um, and you know, you can go on forever here with different commentators describing what color it is. The Malvin describes that the Afanim were, were sapphire turquoise color. Some say they were aquamarine. Some way, some say the word Tarshish means crystal. 
Some say it means beryl, whatever that is, which I don't know what color that is. But there are various um, uh, descriptions of uh, what exactly a Tarshish is. But so what he's describing here is essentially something he's described in chapter one, the appearance of the Chayas or Kruvim above the the uh, the Ophanim, which are directly below it, these circular interlocked angels that are partially physical, partially spiritual. They lie directly below the Chayos. The area between them, like when the when the Chayos, so to speak, click their heels, so to speak, in the context of, say, the Wizard of Oz, when the Chayos click their heels, expressing God's will, transferring God's will down to the area of the, of the Ophanim, so it creates fire. And um, that's the barrier between them. The barrier between them is a barrier of fire. So when the uh, chayos click their heels, passing on God's will, it creates a fiery response. And then the ophanim, so to speak, which are the guardians of the elemental forces of the physical world, do their duty and transfer God's will from its physical base up in the world of Atsilos and transfer it down into to have a physical effect in the physical world. That's what he's describing. And again, we discuss this in chapter one in much greater detail. So moving on to verse eleven, the When they went, they would go towards the four directions, Yelechu, below Yisabu Belechdom, they would not rotate when they traveled. Rather, to the direction where their head was turned, they would travel, and they would not turn or rotate when they traveled. So you have these Ophanim. They've also got four faces, just like the Chayos did. And um, each Ophan had four faces. So you've got a, a circular being, so to speak, with four faces. Uh, depending from which angle you looked at it. And um, it appeared to be circular, but obviously we had four faces, and there was some part of it that wasn't circular. And they were all interlocked with each other. So you had four Ophanim, each with four faces, uh, the four, four different fa- each one had four different faces, but the face on each Ophan was exactly the same. They were interlocked with each other, and they moved as a... Um, 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 like a cross axle, either north south or east west, uh, depending on what their job was. And we know the, the 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 directions north south is to do with kedusha, and east west is to do with the difference between something that is spiritual and something that is purely physical. So depending on what uh, actions they were they were performing, they would travel in particular directions using. The various elements of the four elements, the four elemental, uh, four basic elements of um, uh, that we described before: uh, earth, fire. Um, what was it? Earth, fire. Remember what they are: um, earth, water, air, and fire, and uh, in various combinations. And that's how they would move. That's how they would interact with the physical world. That's what he is, um, that's what um, Yechezkel is describing here. Um, so that uh, in the same way that the Kruvim and Chayes could travel in all four directions independent, independently, 
so too the Ophanim could do the same. The difference being that the Chayos, or the Kruvim, as they're described here, their movements were autonomous. Uh, and because it's clear that the movements of the Ophanim were triggered by the feet of the Kruvim, by the feet of the Chayos, you might have thought that the movements of the Ophanim were dependent on the direction of the movement of the Chayas. But Yechezkel is telling you here in this verse that the Ophanim could also move independently, autonomously, once their movement was triggered by the angels above them. So if the angel above them triggered them to move, they they, they then didn't depend on the movement of the Chayas above them uh, to complete their task. Once the, so to speak, the key had been turned in the ignition, the Ophanim, so to speak, <coughs> had license <coughs> to move in whichever direction they wanted, but they always moved in a linear fashion. And as the Marvin points out, one of the byproducts of the movement of these essentially partially physical Ophanim, these, these um, uh, angels, is that they influence the climate of the planet. And this is something we mentioned in chapter one. I'll just briefly remind you of it. The Ophanim were constantly moving, says the uh, uh, Malbim. They they would travel east-west, and then they would change direction to south-north on a quarter-day basis. So that the temperature of the planet, based on the season and the movements of all the other celestial bodies, were influenced by the four-pronged movements of these Ophanim. Um, and that he says that's why the Rambam statement that though they only represent the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, they could form an infinite uh, or form or initiate an infinite number of combinations, actions, or permutations in the physical world corresponding to God's will emanating from his own spiritual realm. So they, they could use co- the combinations of these four elements uh, to create any circumstance and they were responsible for, so to speak, one of the things he says is the climactic conditions on earth, which are representations of God's will. God, so to speak, the universe seems to um, rotate uh, or expand uh, mindlessly. And summer comes to the northern hemisphere during uh, June, July, August. It comes to the southern hemisphere in November, December, January, February. And that seems to go like clockwork. But the reality is that this is the will of God as uh, transferred down through the chayos into the into the um, structure of these ofanim. And their, their interaction with the physical world preserves the world's motion, preserves all everything, all the uh, physical characteristics of the world, everything that happens in the world, uh, although it's an expression of God's will, um, it's the physical representation of God's spiritual will that has been transformed by these Ophanic. So if you want to, to blame global warming on anybody, it would appear that these are, these are the angels to blame it on because they are responsible for the climactic conditions of the earth, um, at any one time. Okay. So that's the, that's the, the technical stuff. Let's move on to something more. Rabbi, uh, on, a, on, a, on a light side, is this um, chariot, is it uh, an electric chariot or does it run on gas? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, it runs on alternative energy, um, green energy. Uh, it doesn't run on gas. It doesn't run on coal. 
It runs on green energy, God's energy, which is completely green and con- completely um, non-pollutant. So non-pollutant energy source. We wish we had it here, right? So that uh, we could shut up all the climate activists, especially that young idiot woman, girl, Swedish girl that keeps on appearing on TV crying about um, uh, the heating up of the planet. But um, I don't know what her name is, but she's very annoying. Um, just getting back to uh, some, some semblance of reality. Sorry that these 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 verses are a little bit, uh, uh, you know, way up in the sky type of thing. Um, so now Yechezkel describes the appearance of the Ophanim again. He says the whole Basarim gives a, a more detailed account of what these Ophanim uh, are doing. The whole Basarim Gabain notice that he's just. Disc- Greta Thunberg. Hello? Greta uh, Thunberg, is that right, David? Greta Thunberg, yeah, she's the anointing, she's the anointing, yeah, she is. Drives me mental as well. Yeah, yeah, well, we're from Lancashire and Yorkshire, men will be driven mad by people like that. Okay, Um, just moving swiftly on, if you notice here, something Yechai School does with the Afani, which he never does with the Chayas, he calls, he describes them, the whole Basara for Gabayhem, their entire bodies, their skin, their flesh, for Gabayhem, their backs, Videhem, their hands, Vachanfehem, and their wings, Vofanim, Malayim, they all, you know, they had uh, their entire bodies, they had backs, they had physical flesh, they had hands and they had wings, Vofanim, Malayim, Enayim, and they were covered all over with eyes, Soviv, Laarabotam, Ofanehem, they were covered in eyes on the four sides of the circular movement, so, it's very difficult to understand the four sides of a circular movement because a circular movement is circular. So that's why I, I tried to um, push the idea, push the notion that although they are circular, um, they do have four faces each, and they but they don't move in a circular motion. They move in a linear motion um, as opposed to a circular one. Um, um, so Yechezkel here is describing again the Ophanim, and he makes it clear that they are physical physical creatures. Uh, bodies, skin, uh, meat, backs, hands, and wings. Um, they have, he, he, they have certain body parts performing tasks. Now, the, the idea of the gabayhen, the backs of the ofanim. So, the job of the backs of the ofanim, uh, as you can imagine, is the, su- their support vehicles. They are the support vehicles for the chayos, or kruvim, the chayos akodesh, the kruvim that are above them. And most importantly, their their backs are the support mechanism for the chariot, so to speak. If you look at looking at the chariot of God as a physical item, if you look at it as Yechazkel is as God's chariot as a physical as a physical manifestation of something, so they are the support vehicles with the wheels, so to speak, the landing crap, the landing uh, gear, and the takeoff gear, and uh, they also support. Or keep in place not only uh, the chariot of God, but uh, also they keep in place uh, the physical universe as well. Again, the Malbim says the Malbim is not a, a Kabbalistic 
Islamic uh, commentator, but he feels uh, that you have to understand what these Ofanim, what the jobs of these Ofanim are. He says, Gabeya and their backs, Yeshlem Ofanim Gav, they've got uh, backs. They, they're not real backs, but they are the stars um, that stand on their shoulders, so to speak, on their backs. Um, uh, 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 All the countless planets, stars, appear to be supported on the backs of these rolling ofanim. It's uh, so the best translation I can come up with. So you, you have this, uh, they, 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 the Ophanim are not there just to support the uh, Merkavad, God's chariot, so to speak, but they are, their backs are there to support the universe. They hold the universe in place. It's something that, that we've just been discussing. They are the interactive force between God's will, which is expressed in spiritual terms, and how it interacts with the physical universe. They are the conduit by which uh, God's spiritual will is um uh, is performed in the physical world, and that's how the physical universe stays in it, in its place. And um, so that's their backs. Then it says vidayhem. The Ophanim seem to have hands. The reference to the physical action they initiate in the physical world that started again with God's non-physical will in the uppermost celestial realm. That divine spiritual will was is then partially transformed in something that was both physical and spiritual by the chayos that are above them, and finally transported, transformed into God's will being expressed in the physical realm by the hands of the Ophanim. The, the word hands here uh, implies the final uh, transformation of God's will from something spiritual into something physical, so that the Ophanim, whether they had actual hands or not, but it's a, a description of the way they manipulate the physical world on the basis of God's spiritual will. And again, then he, he describes, he says the kanfayan, the wings. The wings represent the, the, the ability, the afanim, to travel and fly between the physical and spiritual realm. Their, their abilities extend both into the higher spiritual realm and down into our physical realm. And finally, Yechezkel says, Ba'ofanim meleim einayim. Uh, they had myriad thousand, un- uncountable amount of eyes. Uh, so again, the Malbim tells us these, that the Ophanim uh, are the directors of the movements of the heavens, the physical heavens, the seasons, the stars, the constellations, everything that exists in the physical world, they are responsible for holding it in place. And that's what the eyes represent. He says, their backs were covered with eyes. What's the idea? of all these eyes supported on the backs of the Ophanim, that Yechezkel sees all these eyes, like eyes looking everywhere. What he's actually seeing is the almost infinite amount of stars, that physical stars, the actual stars that God had created that exist in the galaxy. At the present count, um, there are 10 to the power of 28 stars that we know about that uh, we've been able to calculate, which is a lot. 10 to the power of 28 is a lot of stars. Trillions and trillions and trillions. So these eyes are 
on the one hand, they, they're God's, so to speak, eyes on the creation, but uh, in, in a euphemistic terms, God n- doesn't miss anything. Everything is, is seen by God. But in terms of the physical universe, they represent all the stars that exist in existence. Uh, and also the moons of these, these stars, the planets of these stars that uh, reflect the light of these stars. And they appear, they're projecting light, uh, seemingly like an infinite collection of shining eyes coming from every direction that appears to be completely and utterly infinite. Like uh, you look at look up into the night sky, if you're in the desert, for example, and there's a clear night, uh, the amount of stars, e- even in the physical, uh, it, it, that your eyes can see, almost appear to be infinite. And we know that stars can influence what goes on below, but this is really the light of God's wandering eye watching everything. So you have a, a dual uh, purpose to these eyes. On the one hand, they represent the whole physical universe, all the stars and planets and everything else that are supported by the backs of the Ophanim, but they also represent God's hashkocha, um, God's providence over all of creation. So what Yechezkel is actually seeing, so to speak, is the light of the eyes of God who oversees the whole of reality under his constant providence. So that these are all the things that, uh, so to speak, are going through Yechezkel's mind as he sees the... Uh, the chariot, God's chariot, start to pick up and leave the base of English. So really the essence of the control of the whole of reality, uh, as we know reality, was encased in the Kodesh Kedoshim. Everything was encased in the Kodesh Kedoshim. Now that chariot that contained everything, really everything, um, so to speak, in miniature, in microcosm, Everything, the control of, uh, from God's, so to speak, uh, heavenly realm down to the areas of the highest and the areas of Bria, the areas of creation, ex nihilo, and the areas of uh, Yitzira, the areas of formation, which transmit God's will into the physical world and the world of Asiya. They were all encapsulated in this chariot, in God's chariot. And that's, and that is the protective shield around the Beit HaMikdosh, it's the protective shield about around Yerushalayim, and that's leaving, that's leaving at the moment, at this particular point in time. And in verse 13, he tells us, These Ophanim, these circular objects, these circular angels, the Ophanim, that I, Yecheskel, heard, called Galgal. They shouted out, they're physical beings, it didn't say they had mouths, but as far as Yecheskel could hear, they shouted out the word Galgal. Now, the word Galgal and the word Ophanim are essentially the same. Galgal means a wheel, Ophanim are wheels, um, so they're essentially the same. 
But um, what's going on here, when God passes direction to the Ophanim to take some physical action in the physical world, he calls them Galgal, or he shouts out to them Galgal, an instruction to the Ophanim to begin to rotate. So the word Galgal is not describing the Ophanim per se, it's describing God's order, or God's command through the Chaios that are above them to begin to rotate and to take action um, in the physical world that is essentially part of God's will. And that's what he, like, obviously God doesn't call out to them, they haven't got ears so they can hear, but God's will, the word, the, the, the word, the, um, the trigger word to initiate the Ophanim to take action in the physical world is Galgal. In, in other words, it's an imperative word. Start rotating, at which point the Ophanim will begin to um, express uh, God's will, uh, which is purely spiritual in a, in a physical way in the physical universe. This is what Yechezkel is observing. How does this process work? Um, that we'll see next week. Next week we'll see exactly how, so to speak, God expresses will um, with the and uh, wants his will to be um, expressed in the physical world by the Ophanim and uh, they get the message, you know, the, the code word Galgal, rotate. And at that point, they have, they interact with the physical world. How exactly that works, we will see. Rabbeinu Bachai will tell us next week, please God. And um, so that's where we're up to at this point. Uh, I'm sorry today was a little bit of a technical um, description of the Merkava, which uh, overlapped from chapter one, but that's just the way it has to, has to be because um, the, the verses that are coming up, we have to have a, a complete idea um, of what the Ophanim are because the Abarbanel is going to give us a tremendous insight into uh, the faces of the Ophanim, which we haven't discussed, not in chapter one uh, and not here in chapter 10. Um, they just we just mentioned that they've got four faces. What are those four faces? Um, and how do they their, their faces interact with the physical world? So that's what we're going to come to next. Um, and again, there's a lot to say uh, on the this issue of God's, so to speak, God's hashkocha leaving its place, its 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 key place in the Kodesh Kadosh, in the Holy of Holies, in the base of Amikdash. And how that changes God's interaction with the whole world. When God's Merkava is stationed inside the base of Migdosh, God's providence on the world, on the physical world is very, very powerful, very, very strong and can be seen. When God's Merkava is away from the Kodesh Kadoshim, away from the Holy of Holies and outside the realm of Yerushalayim, God's providence on the physical world that we know seems to seems to make the physical universe run like clockwork. It's not miraculous. You can't see God. We don't see him in action. We just see the result of his action or the action of the Ophanim on the physical universe, which is God's will. But we don't actually see the miraculous providence of God's will as it as it appeared or as it, as it was visible 
at the time when God's presence, when God's uh, essence, when God's shechina, for want of a better word, was actually in the Kodesh Kadosh. So that's where we're up to. We're up to verse 13. And um, next week is, is, is really the fireworks, where we really get going with this chapter and some pretty strange stuff. Um, but again, this week was just a, really an introduction to that. But next week, we'll, we're going to delve into these Ophanim, what they're up to, and how they interact and how they have interacted in previously uh, in human affairs, particularly at the splitting of the Red Sea. And um, if you uh, you just want to have a quick look, I'll leave you with this thought. If you want to have a quick look at Shamos, um, at the Shira that we say every morning, um, the Shira Sayam, the Song of the Sea, we say every everybody who davens says, says this every morning, um, that um, in the introduction to um, the uh, Shira, uh, God, dis- the Torah describes by Yosar as Ofan Markavoso. God removed the Ofan of the chariots of the Egyptians. So it's a very, very strange word that God, that uh, the chariots were chasing the Jews down to the sea. And uh, God, so to speak, by Yosar as Ofan Markavosa, God's will removed the Ofan of their chariots. Now that word is not there by accident. It's got to do with the way the, the verse uh, uh, there in Shemos is dealing directly with the way an Ofan, one of these circular angels, interacts with the physical world based on God's will. So we'll investigate that next week, please, God. Until then. Uh, everyone have a week um, that is a combination of uh, reflection, which is tonight and tomorrow, together with a day of um, enjoyment, Sasson v'simcha, on Yom Atzmut. Uh, those things, things go hand in hand in the Jewish world. Um, if you think about the Jewish world, so we celebrate Purim, um, a man that tried to destroy uh, the Jewish people in the shadow of a generation in which somebody else nearly succeeded in doing it. And even at our happy, our happiest events in the Jewish calendar. So you think about a wedding. So the end of the ceremony of a wedding is to remember the destruction of the temple. Judaism is about taking sadness and combining it with joy. So the, the swirl of emotions is make, is what makes Judaism Judaism. Um, as opposed to all the other religions that we can, we've got the ability to cope with both tragic loss and, um, simcha all at the same time. And that is encouraged in Judaism. So that is the message of the week. Um, please God, I'll see you again, same time, same place in health and happiness next week. Um, uh, reflect well on Yom Zikaron and then have a great day of Chag on Yom Atzma'ut. Culture to everybody who attended. I hope you enjoyed the share. As I said, next week is where we really get uh, into the, some of the weird stuff. Not that we haven't had weird stuff already, but there's plenty of weird stuff to come. I hope you'll be here to listen to it, cult to everybody. And Gila, um, um, I hope you're feeling better. I know you weren't feeling so great yesterday. I hope you're feeling better. I hope Shirley feels better and everybody else. Willie, you, you've not been so well. I have this bad effect on all the people I give shit to. Uh, they seem to get uh, 
they seem to have a bit of trouble uh, health-wise. I hope it's got nothing to do with the shear. Everyone have a great week, and I hope to see you again in health and happiness. Colton, next week. Colton, bye-bye. Bye-bye.